We talk a lot on this podcast about chess improvement, but when it comes to improving your hiring processes, Indeed is the platform you need. Indeed has over 350 million global monthly visitors, and it has a matching engine that helps you find quality work candidates fast. You can use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with your candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree that Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. Years ago, when I was running a chess teaching business, I found it hard to find good help, and I had to go through a lot of back and forth to even screen potential candidates. Indeed allows you to do those things efficiently in one place. Indeed's matching engine is constantly learning from your preferences, so the more you use Indeed for hiring, the better it gets. Join more than 3.5 million businesses worldwide that use Indeed to hire great talent fast. And listeners of Perpetual Chess will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility if you go to Indeed.com slash chess. Just go to Indeed.com slash chess right now, and you'll be supporting our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast, Indeed.com slash chess. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say. Your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. Hello, everyone. I am Ben Johnson, and this is the Perpetual Chess Podcast. Perpetual Chess is a weekly interview show where top chess players, authors, content creators, and accomplished amateurs discuss their careers and share stories and chess improvement tips. Perpetual Chess is a part of the Blue Wire Podcast Network, and we'd like to give special thanks to our presenting chess education sponsor, Chessable.com. For more information about the show, you can go to perpetualchesspod.com. But without further ado, let's get to the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Perpetual Chess. It is raining bends. We are joined by a return guest, the popular commentator, Twitch streamer, and chess YouTube with over 100,000 followers on both platforms. He was the co-champion of the 1994 and 2007 U.S. Opens, as well as the 2002 World Open, co-founder of the Chess Club and Scholastic Center of Atlanta. May it rest in peace, sort of. We'll, <laughs> we'll discuss that. Um, but let's welcome him back to the show. Four-time guest, friend of the pod, always entertaining, no pressure, Ben. Grandmaster Ben Feingold, how are you? Hooray, it's the Bens. I'm doing great, Ben. How are you doing? I'm well. I stole your It's Raining Bens from your little uh, Twitch That's commercial. Great. That was hilarious. Excellent. Um, so, so Ben, appreciative as always of you taking the time and catching us up on what's what's new with you. We've got a lot to go over. You've been playing tournaments. Um 
you know, your chest center has closed, but I thought we might as well start with uh, the burial of chess, the death of chess. Our mm -hmm. friend of the pod, say chess, Martin Eustacen, wrote a blog post. You know, I had seen David Smeridan on um, Facebook share some similar stats. Levy Rosman has been tweeting about sort of, in my mind, the inevitable decline of chess. I mean, decline from its peak. On April 29th, Levy Rosman tweeted, we are finally seeing the slow decline of the chess boom, decline of the chess boom, excuse me. Everyone's numbers are down. I'm eternally grateful for the past two years, and I feel a sense of responsibility to keep pushing our game to people who haven't been captivated by it yet. Um, I personally, the perpetual chess numbers are also down from the peak, no surprise there. But yeah, I was... Um, a lot of people have been talking about it, Ben, so I thought we should get your perspective. Uh, did, um, are you experiencing this as well, and how do you contextualize it? Yeah, well, I, I can't speak for other streamers because I don't know how they're doing, although obviously I guess Levy's numbers are down because he said so. Um, yeah, our numbers for people viewing and, and donating and watching and all that are down from you know a year ago or so. Um, I'm not sure exactly the reason why. I think it's actually a lot of reasons. Um, you know, one is the the you know the Queen's Gambit miniseries has been over for years. <laughs> um, the other is there's so many streamers to watch that you know it used to be I could name three or four streamers in chess maybe five or six years ago, and now there's you know like two dozen I can name off the top of my head. So. There's more streamers. There's more people going outside and not watching streams all day, and it's not really the death of chess. I think um, I think streaming uh, for a lot of streamers is getting um, is is slightly down, but there's other things to chess than just watching a streamer do chess. So I think chess in general is going okay. Obviously, um, COVID. Um, helped and didn't help as far as chess is concerned. Um, it basically killed live chess and it made the internet boom, you know, boom. And then now that um, we're in sort of a different transition with COVID, um, it seems like people are getting back to playing chess um, and maybe not not as much online as as before when everybody was just staying home. I wouldn't say it's the death of chess. It's probably a small setback and. You know, anything that happens in chess that's super exciting, which could happen any time, I think would bring back uh, a lot of viewers, um, although I'm not very uh, confident that Magnus is going to defend his title. So that yeah. could that could hurt also. <laughs> yeah, I, I share your lack of confidence, on, unfortunately. Um, but yeah, I mean... People were stuck in their house 24 hours a day. That's obviously mm -hmm. an unusual circumstance. So I am not uh, too disheartened. Chess is still more popular than it was prior to Queen's Gambit. And mm -hmm. just anecdotally, you see so many people say they got back into it or they got into it over that period. And uh, welcome to those of you listening uh, from that category. Um, and thanks for sticking around. But as Levy alluded to, I mean, I feel like your job, my job, our job is to be here. You know, people's... People's interest in chess may wax and wane, but we'll be there for for mm -hmm. when it waxes. Um, and Ben, you mentioned, um, you know, that with, say, fewer people in their houses watching, maybe there's an increased interest in people playing. Um, so I'm curious, 
why you're playing so much, which we'll get to in a minute, but also like um, from a just on the Twitch thing, from a business perspective, do, does it bother you that like you said, fewer donations, fewer subs? Is that something that like um, concerns you or are you still happy with where you and Chess are in those regards? Yeah, I, I think it's okay. Obviously, everybody wants to make more money and get more viewers and get more subs and be more popular. My YouTube channel has been steadily growing. As you noted, I recently passed 100,000 subscribers on YouTube. So I haven't really noticed a drop off in viewership um, on our YouTube channels. Uh and again, that's something, you know, that's not a live thing. So people can watch when they want. And so I think the interest in chess is still there. But, you know, as far as watching something live, if you if you like a particular streamer or set of streamers and they're not streaming when you're available, then you have to watch the, you know, the videos of the day. You can't you can't watch everybody live all the time now that people are are back to being busy. Um but yeah, I'm not I'm not disheartened at all. That's just, you know, that's the ebb and flow. Sometimes things, you know, go better and sometimes they're not as good and you just have to roll with the punches. You can't always expect everything to just grow exponentially um, just because you'd like them to. But I still have a good viewership and I think a lot of the top streamers still have lots of people watching and subbing and so forth. Um, if it's not as good as it was a year ago or two years ago, that's fine because that can change also. Yeah. And it's better than it was three or four years ago. Mm -hmm, so it's right. all, you know, it's all a matter of perspective. And one other thing that Martin highlighted, Martin Eustacen in the newsletter I alluded to, which of course I will link to if anyone's curious to, to read it. And I know he's doing some digging to publish another post that will probably be out by the time this interview comes out. Um, we're recording here on Friday, May th Friday, the 13th, Ben, um, and, and this will be out in about 10 days. But Martin also highlighted that he pulled the numbers from Lee Chess and the number of people playing chess was only down about 2%. Mm -hmm. Now, he was unable to get the data from chess.com, which might be a little more representative of the casual fan. I know he's working on getting some sort of proxy numbers from that. But, you know, generally, chess is the most fun thing about chess is to play it. So if people are still playing it, they're still interested. So I did did want to highlight that point that that Martin had mentioned as well. Yeah, and when I have tournaments on my stream where, you know, viewers can play, they seem just as popular as as they've always been. You know, I'm getting generally between 30 and 60 players in my tournaments that are just spur of the moment. I'm like, let's have a tournament. And then 10 minutes later, we got 35 players playing. So people still want to play. Um, and yeah, I mean, you can try to figure out why the numbers are going up and down, but obviously, uh, the pandemic has a lot to do with the numbers. Queens Gambit has a lot to do with the numbers. And I think <clears throat> so many good players are streaming chess. Now, everybody's going to have a smaller slice of the pie and that's okay because I like, uh, when there's a lot of people doing what I'm doing, cause it makes it seem like it's worthwhile that, you know, people are interested if, if, you know, 50, 60, 100, 200 people can stream chess, then people must like it. Yeah. And as you alluded to, Ben, uh, with the popularity of your YouTube channel, the last time we spoke, you mentioned you were kind of like building out a team, you know, to to help you with that even more. So I'm glad to hear that your efforts and the efforts of your team are are being rewarded. Um, do you have any theories as to, to why that's sustaining more? I mean, you did mention 
uh, more people being able to watch on demand. But from your perspective, is are you placing like an increased emphasis on YouTube? Well, when we closed the chess center, um, we lost almost all of our employees, but we kept our YouTube editor. Um, that person makes uh, thumbnails for us, which are very popular. They're funny. They're great. Right. And also does other stuff for us that are internet related. Um, so that's basically our one employee right now. Um, so our YouTube channel um, has a lot of content and we're moving. We used to have two channels, one for the chess center and one for me. And we're moving some of the chess center content over to the, my channel, uh, re-uploading. And those are getting lots of views also. So we, we work hard on the YouTube channel, mainly Karen um, and our YouTube editor. Um, I'm busy making content and they're busy making sure the content gets on YouTube with funny thumbnails and, and such. And I think because chess is still so popular, the YouTube channels aren't going to suffer as much because if people want to watch chess, they can do it whenever they want. But the streaming is going to suffer a little bit just because of the time situation and people going back to work and people not being as home as as much, um, which is good for the, the health, I guess. I'm, like to see the numbers go down for COVID because that was, I mean, it's a, it's a tragedy basically. Um, but yeah, I mean, people have found other stuff to do and there's always a lot to do. We're always competing with a lot of other uh, games and other things people do. Um, but yeah, I think for YouTube, chess is almost just as popular as it's ever been. And so people have a choice of what to watch. And of course, again, if there's five chess YouTube channels, then you're going to get a big slice of the pie. But if there's 200 of them, you're you're not going to get as many viewers. But I think if you put a lot of work into what you're doing, if you hire people and you put a lot of content out um, and you're consistent, like the Perpetual Podcast is, comes out every week instead of, you know, once one month and twice the next month and nothing the next month, that wouldn't be so good for your viewership. I think the consistency that we put out videos on the channel, um, as long as, and as well as I should say, people knowing what they like, and they've seen my, my YouTube channel, they say, I like that. So they'll keep watching it. They're not going to stop because, you know, COVID quote unquote is over. Um, They're good. They're going to watch what they like. So I think it doesn't really affect YouTube as much. Of course, my YouTube channel isn't anywhere near as big as Akaru or Levy or uh, Agadmate or um, or even the Chess.com YouTube channel. My channel isn't isn't so big um, compared to them, so they may have a different opinion on the you know what's going on. But I think with so many subs on these big chess channels, I, I think um, chess is not dead at all. Yeah, I I agree. And Ben, you kind of made your bones with your lectures in St. Louis, as we talked about in our interviews four to five years ago. Um, Obviously, you've been well known in the chess world for decades, but uh, I feel like those lectures in particular, chess history, showing famous games, they um, really helped you find a big audience online, um, being one of the most entertaining people to do it. Um, Now, without with the chess center being closed, you don't have a natural venue to sort of like hold court in a room except for some of the traveling you're doing. Um, So is there a plan to sort of try to replicate that for online stuff? I mean, I know you're pulling a lot of clips from your Twitch stream, which are entertaining in their own right. Mm -hmm. But what about the sort of more formal lectures that that people have also been able to find online? Yeah, about two or three times a month. um, 
we do a lecture usually Wednesday night, usually sponsored, um, where I do a Zoom lecture and we get a few people on Zoom who watch live and we put that content on the YouTube channel, um, you know, usually a couple of weeks later after editing. Um, those are very popular. Those yeah. are those are my most popular videos on on YouTube is when I'm lecturing and or teaching um, on a specific subject. And anybody can sponsor a lecture. Um, we contact Karen and she sets it up and she tells me what to lecture on. The lectures are 45 minutes to an hour on the specific subject that the, the sponsor wants to talk about. Um, and those are very popular, the 45 minutes of one hour lectures. And we used to do the same thing at the chess center with a live audience, which wasn't too big. Usually it was, you know, three to six people. Um, Plus, we did it on the we had it on the internet at the same time, so we were getting a few people live. We're getting a few people on the internet, and we're posting the videos in a couple of weeks after we they're edited. Um, so those are still very popular. We just don't have the live audience since I'm here in my basement now, and we've spent a lot of money on the basement to make it look nice um, to get all the cameras down here. I'm looking at a lot of cameras right now. Oh, really? Um, we're not using all them all, but we have a lot. Um, and we have a lot of lights and we have a lot of monitors and we're trying to make it as professional as possible here in our basement instead of at the chess center without all the expenses of the chess center, the, the overhead and the employees and, um, you know, just the day by day operations. Um, it's not easy because the, the chess center, um, has one issue that Atlanta is so spread out um, that people who lived in Metro Atlanta were asking us to open chess centers in their neck of the woods, which actually happened to Peter in Charlotte a couple times. He actually did mm -hmm. move to where people were requesting. Um, but if you live in you know south of the city, um, it's a long drive to the chess center. And we opened in a good place, but we can't really accommodate everybody in Metro Atlanta because it's so it's it's just huge. Um, basically, everything is Atlanta, so you could be an hour away and still consider yourself Metro Atlanta. Um, so it was difficult to get everybody to come to our chess center except people who live within you know ten fifteen miles um, that could make it there. So because of COVID and because Atlanta is so you know spread out, it wasn't easy financially to run the chess center, and we weren't. When we opened the chess center, we weren't thinking, yeah, we're going to become millionaires. That's that's not how you become a millionaire. Um, I think shorting crypto is. But the way, <laughs> the way to be, the way to be, I mean, we, we did it because we wanted to have a chess center in Atlanta. And we had it for over four years. And it wasn't financially viable because the things that made money we can do here on the Internet. Um, I can we can do YouTube stuff. We can do Twitch stuff. And that's the stuff that made money. And we missed the chess center because people would come in. You know, yeah. we're, people, we're people, people. And, uh, you know, it was just a lot of work, especially for Karen, for not any financial gain, but just to say you have a chess center, which is nice. Um, I forgot what you asked, but. but well, yeah. I was going to ask you about that anyway. And I, yeah. one thing I am curious, Ben, because in our prior conversations, I feel like you kind of you knew that going in. I mean, you were hoping to someday mm -hmm. make a bit of money from the chess center but one could view it potentially even as like a loss leader for, for everything else you're doing. So I'm, I'm just curious if, if it was like a change of heart that you and Karen had or like no, was the I writing on was, the wall for a while? I think it was, I think it was uh, probably 
70% of where we closed is because COVID existed. Mm-hmm. And that, that hurt the numbers a lot. For the stuff that we're trying to do to break even, that really hurt the bottom line. And for the stuff that we do that makes money, COVID probably helped. So right. by 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 doing the streaming, by continuing with YouTube and selling merchandise online and the other stuff that we do, uh, we don't need a chess center for that. The stuff we needed a chess center for, having a club, having tournaments, having camps, those numbers not only were way down, but we had to close the chess center for about six months because we didn't want people coming in and getting COVID. Um, you know, when 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 the pandemic started, we were closed for a long time and we still did stuff online like we do here, but now we don't have the overhead. Um, so it's funny because the, the two things at the chess center, on the one hand, there's some things that just make money. Then there's other things we're hoping to break even. And the pandemic made the things that make money make more money and the things that break even lose money. So we had, to, we didn't need a chess center for the stuff that made money. Yeah, um, it was just it was unfortunate because we wanted to break even on you know tournaments and camps and classes and having free play and just having people come to the club. So it was nice having a club. We did have a club for over four years, and that's quite a long time. Yeah, so we're pretty proud of that, and we had thousands of people come to our chess center. Uh, several grandmasters. Nigel Short gave a lecture in Simul once when he was in town. So for a mom and pop kind of business, um, I think we did well. And we don't have the money that, you know, St. Louis does or even the Mechanics Institute or the Marshall Chess Club. But uh, we we lasted a long time considering we're a mom and pop organization. And we're continuing all the stuff online. That really We really haven't skipped a beat with that. If if you didn't know we closed the chess center, you probably wouldn't know unless we told you. Um, Cause again, most of the people who know about us know about us online, either through YouTube or Twitch or chess.com. And only the people who get to the chess center. Um, now they don't go and see us. However, we, we did sell the business to another chess entrepreneur who has a lot of, he's in a lot of the schools and they have the, the chess club is still going they're just doing it differently than we're doing it. They're not having as many events, um, but they're going to start doing stuff weekly. So it's, it's still going. It's just not going with us. Yeah. And another thing that came up in one of our prior conversations, I think the company you're referencing is kid chess Atlanta, although it looked like they're, they're branding as the chess zone for, for adults. Um, And, uh, and of course, Carlos Perdomo, a friend of the pod is there. So I think that there's, I mean, Atlanta of course is a, big and fast growing city. So in that sense, it's a decent market for chess, but I also think there's maybe uh, more competition than in some other cities in terms of um, like, as you mentioned, one of our in school programs and stuff like that. Right. The, the in-school programs are what make most chess clubs like we had exist because you're making a lot of money by being in 10, 20, 50, or in, in kid chess's case, uh, you know, over a hundred schools. And by having a chess center, you legitimize, you know, uh, the schools like that when you have a chess business and you're teaching kids and, and like that. And we really couldn't break into that. So we avoided that part of the sector because that, as you said, Carlos Perdomo, 
um, Deepak Aaron and uh, the Chess Zone people, they're, they're in almost every school in Atlanta. There's, in fact, there's another organization called Championship Chess, which also is in a lot of schools. So getting into the schools was something we were too late to do. And so we didn't concentrate on that. But this is, this is what keeps a lot of chess centers going is they have the school programs and they can get the kids to come to their chess center also for, for scholastic events and other events. And we didn't have that. So the financial part of the chess center wasn't working out as well as we had hoped, although it was fun to have a chess center. It was, I mean, it was nice yeah. to have a chess center in Atlanta. So, so do you miss it? Um, I, I mean, we both miss it occasionally, but it was definitely the right decision because Karen is still super busy and we're doing a lot of work on our chess channel and we're not, you know, we're not working for nothing basically, which was what was happening is Karen's working all day and night and we're not making any money out of it. We're just doing it out of the love for chess. Um, so this is, uh, this makes more sense financially. We did it as long as we could, but at some point, the financial aspects take over. Yeah, that makes sense. All right. Well, Ben, I want to ask you about your recent uh, tournament um, adventures, but uh, first we're going to take a break and hear from our sponsors. In honor of this week's guest, I ran the aim chess algorithm to find strengths and weaknesses in GM Ben Feingold's blitz games. Here's what I found. Number one, Ben struggles on Mondays. Is he having too many wild weekends? Is he staying up late watching Sunday night prestige television? I don't know. Something to ask him the next time we chat. Number two, his time management is good. Unlike some podcast hosts I could name, Ben is ahead on the clock 58% of the time. He's still pretty fast. Number three, his openings are pretty good. He's holding his own with the Hungarian opening and doing even better with the Sicilian. These are just a few of the insights Aim Chess can provide. It grabs games from the major sites and lets you review key positions and tactics you missed from your own games. To find your own data, go to aimchess.com and try it out for free. If you choose to subscribe, use the promo code PERPETUAL30 to save 30%. With the Lucky Land Slots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. This is your captain speaking. Uh, We've got clear runway and the weather's fine, but we're just going to circle up here a while and uh, get lucky. No, no, nothing like that. It's just these cash prizes add up quick. So I suggest you sit back, keep your tray table upright, and start getting lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandslots.com. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. And we are back. And Ben, aside from all the chess center stuff, I mean, it probably actually helps that you've been able to go to all these tournaments. Um, I know you've got a few coming up, which you can share in a minute, but you also recently played into the Foxwoods Open and the aforementioned FM Peter Giannato's down in Charlotte's uh, Alto tournament, at least 21, which was a sort of unique format uh, where only adults over 21 could play. I really wanted to play. Uh, a lot of listeners probably have heard Peter on the podcast. They're doing Wait, you're over 21. Okay. <laughs> Barely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, again, I couldn't make it cause, uh, family stuff and little league season, but anyway, Ben, what's the trip report both on your chess game and, uh, just your general misadventures. Well, I, I play really badly now and it, it was always a question when I had a bad tournament, over the last, let's say, 10 years, I would always ask myself, was I always bad or I just became bad? Like, what happened? Was I bit? Was I bad at my prime? And now it's just clear that I'm much worse than I used to be. 
And Karen's always blaming the fact that I don't study enough for it all. Um, <laughs> that's not, you know, if I was losing in the opening or not knowing the opening or playing bad openings, that would account for why my results are bad. However, my results are bad because I don't see anything. And I used mm. to see stuff. And I don't know if it's age or I, I shouldn't know what it is, but I'm clearly worse than I was 10 years ago, 20 years ago. Um, and in fact, although my peak rating was 2663 USCF, my current rating, very embarrassing, by the way, is 2490. And I mean, I was 2600 like four or five years ago. So the tournaments haven't been going well. I've been drawing and losing to lower rated players. Um, in Foxwoods, I was winning against a lower rated player in round two for like 30 moves. And then I made a one move blunder losing the game immediately. That was the only game I lost, but I drew like three lower rated players also. Um, and Alto, I drew a 1900 in the first round. So that was, that was quite bad. The rest of the turn was actually okay after that. Um, but yeah, I'm playing a lot worse. And the, one of the main reasons I'm playing isn't because I'm gung ho to play, but you know, Karen likes to play in tournaments. She likes to play out of state against new people. She likes slow time controls, which you generally don't find in local, local events anywhere. So you have to play in these big tournaments so you can have a three, four five hour game, which is what Karen likes. Um, and when she plays in the tournaments, I figure I should play also. Um, I also went to the high school championship. I was the the guest grandmaster giving, you know, simul and playing blitz chess and stuff like that, giving a lecture. Um, so we, we like going to different places. That was in Memphis. Uh, and as you said, I have a busy schedule. We're going to Chicago in two weeks for the Chicago Open. Um I've played in many Chicago Opens. That might be the annual tournament that I've played in the most of all annual tournaments because I've lived in Michigan. I lived in St. Louis and we played last year because those are, those are the kind of events that, that Karen likes. Um, in Vegas, I'm not playing in the national open, but Karen is, and I'm, I'm the guest grandmaster there as well. So camp and game analysis and stuff like that. And then in Philadelphia, the world open we're we're all playing. Uh, oh, wow. And Archer's Spencer, playing. Spencer too, or? Uh, no, Spencer's not playing, but Archer, Karen's son, is playing in Chicago and Philly. So it's a big family, you know, affair when we go to some of these tournaments. You know, especially in the summer when the kids don't have school. Yeah, that um, makes sense. So and yeah, I mean, I'm playing mainly because, you know, we like to travel, and Karen likes to play, and I figure, well, I guess I should play. What? what why am I there? But. You know, when I play in the tournament, I'm like, why am I playing? I don't see anything anymore. <laughs> so at least I have a goal now to get back to 2,500 USCF. But I was 2,492 before my last event, and I lost two points. So I'm, I'm going the wrong way. Um, but, yeah, I just had some horrible events. I mean, last year in the state senior tournament of champions, that was one of my worst tournaments ever. Um, I think I lost 30, 35 rating points. And I lost rating points in Foxwoods, maybe 20. I lost rating points at Alto. So I haven't played in a tournament and gained rating points in, in a long, long time. Um, so I, I got to do something. I got to uh, play faster, play better, see more, and somehow get 30 years younger. I'm not sure how to do that one. <laughs> but, um, 
I mean, I'm going to do more opening study so I can get better positions out of the opening because most of my opening prep is from 30 years ago. So at least my opponents don't know it because they weren't alive then. But <laughs> but yeah, when I played in some of these tournaments like World Open and Foxwoods, all of my opponents are like 13 years old. So and I, I can't beat them. But if I can play people in their 50s and 60s, then I have a chance. Yeah, I was going to ask you about that because uh, friend of the pod, your fellow Atlanta resident now, uh, James Altisher and I and others have been talking about like, I mean, from our perspective down in the 2100, 20, you know, 2000 to 2200 range, um, it seems like the players are just better than they used to be. Um, but when I talk to stronger players like yourself, it may be true, but I don't hear you complaining about it as much. Is that something that strikes you as well, Ben, as, as you play so actively? I think, um, I think kids are stronger than they used to be. And Altusher and I were talking about the fact when we were kids and teenagers and young adults, there wasn't this, you know, barrage of kids between, seven and 14 years old that were just taking up every board. And that was like a rarity. And I remember when I was a kid, if I was playing in an open section and I was, you know, 10, 11, 12, 13, that was, that was rare. And now uh, being an adult, I'm the one who's rare. Mm -hmm. I've never, I mean, the influx of children that are, you know, over 2000, over 2200, over 2400, who aren't even 15 yet um, playing in these strong tournaments and they're, they're better than I was at that age. And there's so many of them. There's so many kids who are good. And now when I'm playing online on chess.com, I'm playing up and coming juniors who aren't even IMs or GMs yet. And, you know, I'm struggling to get 50% in blitz chess you know, like Tani and, and Brewing Shit Hardaway. Wow, yeah. Uh, I mean, I, I play them and I lose a lot of games and I'm like, these guys haven't gotten <clears throat> anywhere near as good as they're going to be in, you know, like four or five years when they when they become much better than me. Um, but still in, in Blitz chess and even in regular chess, they're, they're catching up like very quickly. And that's why the Alto tournament was so popular. It had over 100 players because – you know, kids are better than adults. Kids learn faster. Kids remember stuff better. And there's there's so many of them. And it used to be, you know, adults hated playing kids in the 70s and 80s, but they only had to do it once a tournament or once every two tournaments. And now it's every round. And those kids are good. So I, I wouldn't say adults are getting better, but but the kids are getting better. Interesting. And, and, a, and a lot of the tournament players are kids now. And at our yeah. chess center, when we were open, we would have open tournaments with experts and masters playing. And board one was like a 10-year-old versus a nine-year-old, like in the late end of the tournament. And I'm right. like, what is this? This is open section. <clears throat> but but and and most of the players in the tournament were kids, and it was an open tournament because that's that's the way chess is going now. Chess is very popular with children, and they're really good. So I can't compete with, with those kids anymore. That's why I was hoping Alta would be a good tournament for me. But, okay, I lost two rating points. It wasn't that bad. But um, 
if I'm playing kids in tournaments, my rating is going to go down. They're, they're, they're all underrated. All of them. Rawr. Yeah. And, and, and with FIDE. I'll on my lawn. Get off my yeah. lawn. <laughs> exactly. And FIDE ratings, I feel like, make it even worse. I don't know about you, but, but my true. FIDE rating is taking a yeah. beating because they're all either unrated or like they're like mm-hmm. 1,600 FIDE and 2,000 USCF, even if they're USCF. You know, I wouldn't mind if all the kids that played were terrible. That'd be fine. Yeah. But that's, not, that's not the case. The case is... Yeah you know, that I'm not, I'm not better than them anymore. So, you know, and when I was at my peak, I could beat those kids. When I was actually playing good chess, I had a lot of experience and I understood a lot. I saw a lot. And now that I'm, I'm getting older and more feeble, I, and I don't, I don't understand or see stuff more than they do. And their ratings are really low. So I need, yeah. I need more complaining though. How long is this podcast? As you those complain all day. <laughs> yeah. Well, let's think about it from Karen. Karen's perspective. You mentioned she likes classical games, and she's kind of the driving force behind you playing so much. Mm-hmm. So, but you also mentioned she's super busy. So, is is Karen managing to to put in some hours working on her yeah. game? Yeah, and actually, um, it used to be she was super busy doing stuff for the Chess Center, as well as YouTube and Twitter and Twitch and all that stuff. Um, but now she's super busy just with the online stuff and making sure everything runs smoothly. And she has a lot more time on her hands than she did when the chess center existed. And unfortunately she's equally busy because as you mentioned, she's using that time to study chess. Okay. So she tries to study chess three hours a day. Good for her. her. Shout out to Karen. Yeah. And sometimes she does it and sometimes she's close. Um, <clears throat> and she's done tens of thousands of puzzles on chess.com. She she gets coached. She looks at her games. She does opening prep. And she tries as hard as she can to get a good performance in a tournament by doing a lot of work beforehand. The problem Karen has, which is a good problem, is she doesn't like playing people her own rating or lower, so she always chooses to play up um, usually two sections. So you're not going to see her getting six out of seven or, you know, seven out of nine because she's not playing in her section. She's playing in the under 1800 section, the under 1700 section, and her rating's 1300. So she's paired up every round by two, three, 400 points. And that's, that's what she wants. She wants to, yeah, I think that's a great attitude. Right. And she doesn't mind losing. She wants to play a good game and have a close game and be competitive. She doesn't want to play players her own rating because she doesn't. She wants a challenge. She wants to play people who are better. That's what I recommend to my my former students was to, if you're trying to get better at chess, play people who are better than you. And I guess I'm following my own advice because no matter what my opponent's ratings are, they're all better than me. <laughs> yeah, so, right. I, mean, I can play two thousand players and they know more than I do and see more than I do. Play faster. And I'm like, what is this? I, I used to be good. You're falling um, below 2,500 is definitely a first world problem, Ben. <laughs> I'm, 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 I'm following my own advice by only playing better players. Um, right. <clears throat> but it turns out their ratings aren't higher, unfortunately. But they will be soon. Luckily, my floor is 2,200. So I can't, <laughs> go, I can't go below that, no matter how bad I play. So that'll, that'll show those experts. Huh. And... Getting back to your own game, like the fact that you're playing more, I mean, I think uh, a lot of people, even people who who continue to compete with the exception of someone like Shabalov, who's out there all the time, a lot of them might pop up for one or two tournaments a year, whereas now you're you're in a little 
streak where you're going to play, say, five tournaments in five months or whatever mm -hmm. it is, do you feel like just from playing you're going to get sharper? Or, or are you at a point where, as you say, your openings need too much work and uh, you would have to, like do stuff away from the board too. Yeah, my main problem is, it, is, is openings is a problem. That's not my main problem. Main problem is I don't see anything anymore or understand anything. Otherwise, I'm fine. I bet you still understand stuff. You may yeah, not see I, it, but. I, some stuff I understand and a lot of stuff I don't. Um, yeah, I see Shabalov every big tournament I go to. <laughs> he's, he's still out there. He's, he's up and down. He'll have a very bad tournament. They don't have a very good tournament, sort of like the old days. But his his rating has gone down quite a bit because he's he's even a year older than I am. I didn't think anybody was older than me, but it turns out he is. Um, although he won the last round against the highest rated player in Foxwoods and ended up tying for third, I think. Great. So he, he had a good tournament there. Very exciting last round. Um, if you had asked me this question five, ten years ago, I would have said, "Yeah, I get sharper by playing and so forth." That's got to keep in keep in practice. Nowadays, that doesn't seem like it's, it's helping me at all. Um, but I guess we'll find out because I'm playing in two big tournaments um, over the next month and a half. And maybe, maybe by playing a couple now, Foxwoods and Alto, maybe Chicago and the World Open won't be as bad as, uh, as I'm expecting. Yeah, let, let's hope so. I mean, do you, so you're like 52, 53? How old are you, Ben? I'm 52, but I will be 53 in September. Okay. And so do you do you feel it at the board? Do you feel like I'm not seeing anything? Or is it only when you look at the game after that you're like, oh, oh yeah, during, during the game, I'm like, what, what happened to me? Yeah. I, I think that all the time. Like, was I always this bad? <laughs> like, I, I, it's unbelievable how much stuff I miss now and how huh. I misevaluate. And yeah. And, it, you know, if it was lack of studying the opening, then I could blame that. But it's... You know, my positions are okay after the opening. And then, uh, you know, I'm just not playing as well as I used to. And I make a lot more blunders, especially uh, when I play Blitz Chess online. I'm blundering. I'm, I'm hanging pieces. I move a queen and the guy takes it. The guy attacks my queen, I don't see it. I mean, that's not, not stuff I was doing 10 years ago. So my, my, my Blitz game has gone down. My slow game has gone down. But I still like going to chess tournaments. And Karen loves playing chess. She hasn't she hasn't got the hatred for it that you get after you know <laughs> right. years and years of hitting your head against the wall. Um, but yeah, I mean, uh, I still like going to tournaments. Occasionally, I'll play a good game. Occasionally, and shockingly, I won prizes in my last two tournaments. I won money in Foxwoods and I won money at the Alto tournament. I don't oh, know how nice. that's possible, but you know, still. Not as bad as I could be, but I'm I'm working towards it. I'm just worried, like, if if I'm alive in five or ten years, if I still play chess, how I'm going to play. I think I have to not play chess then. I think it's going to be embarrassing. And, you know, many years ago, I was at a chess camp in, in Arizona, and one of the instructors was Jeremy Silman. He told me, he says, yeah, I quit chess when – my last 35 tournament games, I had 32 draws. <laughs> said, he said, that's enough. And I do find I draw a lot more low-rated players than I used to instead of squeezing them like I used to. I find out there's more draws in my games now because I can't put people away or I can't get an advantage. Um, 
Not not 32 draws out of 35, but still more than I'd like. Hmm. Well, maybe it's just a slump, and I'm not ready to bury there you, you yet. Here at the fifty-two. Oh, yeah. <laughs> but yeah. on the topic of blunders, we had a question from Patreon supporter of the pod, Alex Friedman. Uh, thanks for supporting the pod, Alex. Um, and he wrote in to ask. He said, "Ben, you often say that all beginner and immediate intermediate players need to do to improve is to blunder less. How do you define a blunder here? Is it just blundering a piece or a mate? You know, I define, it... I define a blunder depending on your, your skill level. Okay. So for somebody like that, yes. If you're, if you're, let's say under a thousand rated, <clears throat> then opening study isn't what's going to make you better. If you can play a whole game without going, Oh no, I hung my rook. Darn. I hate when that happens. And most games at those levels are lost because of things like that. <clears throat> not because the guy knew one more move of theory than you did. Uh, that's not, you know, that's, that's neither here nor there. That's important at the top level, you know, who's, who has the most novelties and understands the positions the best. But at the lower level, people blunder too much and they don't put enough emphasis on not blundering and they put too much emphasis on opening study. And obviously, if you look at your games and you notice I blundered a knight that game, I blundered a rook that game, I blundered back rank mate that game, you'll start to see that, you know, the things that you're doing to improve your game, um, well, they should be not doing that. And <clears throat> focusing more on the safety of your move rather than the, the, the craziness of the game. And a lot of low-rated players, they, they like crazy. They, they want interesting chess. And because of that, you see more blunders. And that's why at the lower levels, the only draws that we see are, you know, people getting stalemated when they're losing. So, I mean, because the other person doesn't know it's stalemate. Otherwise, there's just an incredible number of decisive games because of all the blundering. And at the top level, when I say top level, I don't mean the top in the world, but like, you know, the best players in your state. When you play a blitz tournament, you see the same thing. Blitz tournament, it's very hard to be careful. You know, you got to move. And so there's very few draws in blitz tournaments because there's just a lot more mistakes. There's a lot more blunders, even with grandmasters, IMs, FMs, WGMs. Everybody's blundering because you don't have enough time on your clock to, to not blunder. And the difference is <clears throat> when the strong player has a lot of time, they blunder very infrequently. And Low rated players are blundering all the time. So yeah, you have to you have to stop blundering first. And if you can play a whole game and not make a one move blunder giving up a piece or giving up checkmate, your results will improve dramatically. Okay. And then for you, what's a blunder, Ben? In a tournament game? Well, for me, while I'm playing, a blunder is when I miss everything. So even <laughs> so, so half of my blunders are okay. Like, I'll make a move, and I'm like, oh, my God, this, that, and the other thing. And that line that I looked at, that was wrong. So that's a blunder because everything I'm seeing is wrong. It turns out half the time, oh, okay, it's okay. Like, I, I also missed this other thing, so now I'm okay. And when I'm playing a game, it's very frustrating when you calculate a line, that line happens, and you're like, man, I that, that didn't make any sense what I thought. That made hmm. no sense. Obviously... A normal blunder is my opponent makes a move I didn't see. And I'm like, ooh, that's a good move. I blundered. 
But a lot of my blunders now is my opponent goes right into the teeth of my analysis. And, and I'm like, oh, yeah, that, that wasn't good analysis. And I, I feel bad about that, that when my opponent does what I think they could do, that I don't analyze it correctly. And it's, it's bad for me. And I, I do that a lot more often now. My, my judgment isn't what it used to be. I can't sit there 10, 15 minutes of move. I'll lose on time. I move 15. So I have to just go with my gut. And uh, my, my gut isn't uh, what it used to be. I guess that's, that's the problem with losing weight. <laughs> I need more weight. I'll have a better gut. Ah. No, I guess not. And are you getting in time trouble? Like, or are you managing to force yourself to move? I get in time trouble the same amount that I used to. It wasn't, I'm not playing slower. But if I could, if I had an infinite amount of time to think, I would definitely play a lot better. I, I, I wouldn't move as much. I'd be really like <clears throat> trying to work out. And I guess I'm just slower now. Like figuring out all the intricacies of the position takes me forever. And, you know, I, I, I have to move. So that's, that's unfortunate. Um, you know, for me, it's not unfortunate for chess. It's just unfortunate for me. And I see a lot of people in their forties and fifties who are a lot better than me. Uh, and their skills are degrading also. And I'm like, yeah, that's like me. Now I know how Kasparov feels. Now I know how Elvest feels. Uh, and I could go on and on. Like, obviously, Yasser. I mean, now, now conversely, Gregory Kaidanov just had a great tournament yeah. in South America and qualified for the World Cup. Yeah, I was excited 62. about that. Yeah, he doesn't play very often. Obviously, he's not what he used to be. He plays mainly for fun now. But it's nice that he qualified for the World Cup being, you know, he'd probably be the oldest player there. Yeah, I mean, I love even the ambition that, uh, you know, this tournament is, you know, you got to travel to South, I believe, was it uh, Costa Rica? Where was it? Um, that was in Colombia. Col Colombia. Um, yeah, I don't know. You, you could be right. Or it might even be El Salvador. <laughs> I don't remember. Um, but in any event, you know, you travel a long way and you're playing for a few coveted spots. So I, mm -hmm. I love even the ambition that it's 62 he's playing. And then it was great to see his efforts rewarded. And friend of the pod, Timur Gureyev qualified as well. I think, mm -hmm. did Christopher Yu get in? How many spots were there? I think Christopher Yu did get in, yeah. Which will be fun to watch, of course. He's he's not over the hill, you could say. But, no. uh <laughs> Man, Christopher Yu, <sighs> three years ago, four years ago, two years ago, I was told, I don't know if it's true, I'm not making this up, that Christopher Yu was a big fan of me, watched all my videos, watched my stream, and he would play in my Blitz tournaments. He would play, you know, where it's like me and then my viewers. Right. And he would play because he liked the stream a lot. He learned a lot from me. And he it didn't matter what his rating was. didn't matter. I lost. Huh. If he was 2,100, he beat me. When he was 2,300, he beat me. When he was 2,500, he beat me. And now that his rating on chess.com is probably like 2,900, he doesn't play in my tournaments anymore. But <laughs> – I don't remember ever not losing to him, like ever, like no matter how old he was. I, and not only did I lose, I would lose badly. It wasn't even a close game. I would just get destroyed by him. And so I'm not surprised that he's, you know, <clears throat> doing as well as he is because he always seemed like he was going to blossom at some point and be one of the top players. So we'll yeah. see if he can make any noise in the World Cup. I'm not expecting Kaidanov to make noise in the World Cup, but I think Christopher, you could. Okay. Any other young players who particularly impress you? 
Yeah, all of them. <laughs> exactly. Well, yeah. okay. I've been trash talking for many years about something and Karen's heard enough of it. So now I can trash talk to you. Um, for years, I would say starting five years ago, when you compared the prodigies, Nihal Saren and Pragnananta, Pragnananta got a lot more publicity. And I was like, no, Nihal Saren's better. No, I've been saying this for five years. And they're like, Nihal Saren, that's not a cool name. <laughs> Ramesh Babu Pragnananta, that's where it's at. And because uh, Prague is so small for his age, he looks like he's younger than he is. So people are like, man, is that, is that kid eight? Because he's right. 2,500. And I'm like, well, he's 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 a year and a half younger than Saren. But I don't know if you were watching on chess.com yesterday, there was a blitz match between Nihal Saren and a Wonder Liang. And it was four and a half, four and a half. And then it was the beatdown of all beatdowns. Saren won nine and a half out of the next 10. Jeez. So Saren won by like 14 points that when the match was over. And I was like, yeah, Saren's good. I mean, Nihal Saren's not kidding around. Now, obviously, Pragnananta is very good also. Um, and if you're talking about prodigies in the world, obviously, I'm a big fan of Saren. And I could name some other people. Probably you were being more U.S.-centric. That's my guess. How it dare seems, you? Seems like right now the, the, the biggest talent that's up and coming is Hans Niemann. Yeah. And... Hans has been studying a lot and playing in a lot of really strong tournaments, round robins, where he's like an average rated player, and he's winning these tournaments, and he's playing in a lot of them. Um, and he's been steadily getting better for the last three or four years. He stagnated for a couple of years, I think, when he was like 14, 15, 16. And I think he's, he's 19 now, and the last three years he's been getting better every year. Um, obviously... Yeah, We've had a lot of good juniors like Sam Savian and Jeffrey Shong uh, for a long time. But the latest is Hans Niemann getting better. Uh, so the other people haven't seemed to be going anywhere for a couple of years, but it's possible now that he's ranked like something like 70th in the world, it's possible if he keeps getting better and keeps playing in these strong tournaments that – you know, he could become top 20, top 30 player in the world in the next couple of years. Yeah. And for, for listeners who didn't hear my interview with him, he talked about how he's studying 12 hours a day. And that was only a few months back. But as Ben alluded to, he's just won consecutive in, uh, invitational tournaments. Mm -hmm. um, that interview was, uh, Ben, you, you may not have heard it, but it was somewhat, I don't know if controversial is the right word, but Hans, he works really hard, um, but he's not lacking for confidence either. You know, so... Uh, yeah. That that interview got more reactions. Than I've a lot known of Hans for a long time. <laughs> yeah, um, but but amazing feats. I mean, it does show that if you really, you know, if you're willing to sacrifice, as he discussed, uh, that good things can happen. Um, mm -hmm. At least if you're 18 instead of 52. No, I mean the I mean the more work you put into chess, the the better you'll get, and you just have to work constantly. And again, it's sort of like us being consistent with the stream and with the podcast. You have to consistently work. You can't just <clears throat> prepare for a tournament for four days and go, I'm ready. It, it's, it's a, it's a lifelong process and all the top players are always working at their game. They're always trying to get better, never satisfied. Yeah. Yeah. And that, I mean, that's a good lesson for somebody like James Harden. I mean, just, you know, he, 
he basically just gives up. He doesn't care. He switches teams. He doesn't try to play when he's playing. He just gives up easily. And so he's going to go down as a talent who didn't achieve what he could have achieved because he doesn't have the work ethic of other top players. And that happens. There are chess players like that also who just, you know, they're not going to work like Anand. I mean, Anand just worked at chess all the time. Yeah. All, all he did was chess and he got really good. And Kasparov was the same. Basically everybody who, who got to the top, like devoted their whole life's energy to getting better at chess. And some people, whether it's football or baseball or basketball, they get to an elite level and then they're like, eh, you know, I don't want to, I'm here. I don't need to continue to work hard. And when you do that, people who aren't as good as you surpass you easily. Yeah. I mean, that's, people, people said he's lazy, you know, James Harden, but it could just be that he's out of shape. It could be he's lazy too. But I mean, not working as hard as you can all the time, uh, that you lose. You 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 got to give it 100 110% every every second. And when I was good at chess, if that ever was true, nobody was more competitive than me. Nobody. And now that's I I lost that. I'm not like, "Yay, Chicago Open. I'm going to go 9 and 0." Rawr. Yeah. <laughs> Where's my opponent? I'll, you know, I'll show them. <laughs> and that's and that that's the way it used to be, and now it's like, I hope I don't embarrass myself. Huh. I mean, you have yeah. to have that, that, you know, the fire in you so you can, <clears throat> you know, perform at the highest level. And that's what all, all, all great people have. They have that fire. And I lost the fire, but when I'm playing a game, I'm trying as hard as I can. But it's not like before when I was engulfed with chess and I had to win. I had to play perfect. It was very important. And I put all my energy into it. And that's just not the way life is now. Now I'm putting energy into my stream. And even that's not easy. Putting energy <laughs> yeah. into your stream or into your podcast, that can make you successful also. If you're, if you're lazy um, with either one, you're not going to be successful. Yeah, it's, it's interesting. I mean, with someone like Harden, I'm a Sixers fan. So, of course, like we're recording this the day after they were eliminated. And mm-hmm. we'll try not to derail this into a sports conversation. But I will say, like... The as much money as these guys make, the the macro sense of not preparing yourself and having fun away from the court, I I can understand that. But not trying when you're there playing, you're already there, you know. Like just just try while you're there, you know. If nothing else, Mm -hmm. that's frustrating. Now bringing it back to chess, Ben, um, you you know you've told the story of playing Anon when he was 16 and what a super talent he is, and obviously, as you mentioned, his his work ethic. Um, carried him through to achieve monumental things. Now, what about the flip side of that? Uh, who are some incredible chess talents you've seen that, that you were surprised didn't achieve as much as you might, you have, know, you might have guessed? You know who got really, 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 really good and then dropped off the face of the earth was Joe Bava. Yeah. Now, yeah. Joe Bava, I don't, know, I don't know what his study habits are. I don't know. Maybe he studies chess 12 hours a day. Maybe he studied 12 hours in his life. I don't know. I, I, I have no knowledge of that. What I do know <clears throat> is that his personal habits away from the chessboard aren't good for his chess. Mm-hmm. Um, 
and he was 2734 I think FIDE and he was like number 20 in the world and he got down under 2600 FIDE yeah and not because he was old okay if you're if you're 25 and you're 2734 then you're 65 and you're 2570 okay that's that's what happens but he did it like sort of in his prime and I think if he had better off the board habits and studied more and focused all of his energy on chess, could have been top 10 or better. And instead, he went into just nothing and doesn't play in tournaments anymore that are elite tournaments. He was playing yeah. in elite tournaments. And then he, you know, now he plays in some random open tournament. I mean, he's not. Is he still Twitch streaming? I know he was for a while. Yeah, his, his streams are pretty funny. Yeah, he does he some dances good dancing. a lot when he's streaming. Yeah, yeah. this is Georgian GM Bader Jabava for people not mm-hmm. familiar. Yeah, and uh, you know Jabava yeah, we're like London because we're Georgian. That's right. <laughs> That's right. Uh, Jabava London inventor, very very creative opening choices. But but mm-hmm. yeah, I know that that he alluded to. I mean, I don't know what's going on with his personal life generally, but I mean, I know he did a new in chess interview a few years back where he talked about some uh, casino misadventures. But yeah. <laughs> I, I don't a, know what goes on. There's a couple of people. Who at a very young age were 2720, 2730, 2740 FIDE, and they were like 18, 19, 20 years old. And I'll I'll tell you who they are. <clears throat> and then that was the end of it. They they never cracked the top 10. They never got better. Nothing happened. And the most recent one is Wei Yi. Mm-hmm. When Wei Yi was 15, I knew who he was. Yeah. And when Wei Yi was 19, I really knew who he was. And then what happened? Now Wei Yi's like probably not even top five in China. Then uh, Etienne Bacro, the French grandmaster, he was a child prodigy, GM at like 13, 2,700 FIDE as a teenager, and then that was it. Yeah. I mean, he never got to the top top. He was just like, yeah, he's pretty good. You know, sort of like a Navarra type. Navarra's not top 10 in the world, but he's pretty good. And, you know, Navarro didn't get to 2,700 FIDE when he was 18. He built up and, you know, and he achieved what he achieved. But it seems like Bacro and Wei Yi and Jobava had chances to get even better. And they and nothing happened. They yeah. sort although of stayed I, at 20, 30, 40 in the world. And then they went down even more. Yeah. Although it's so hard at that level. Again, like if you think mm-hmm. about like the hours that, that Hans Niemann mentioned putting in, like I, mm-hmm. you know, it is. You know, it can. I guess one could perceive it as sad when if someone doesn't make it, but it's just the law of numbers. Not everyone can stay up there, and it, you know, there's a mm-hmm. lot of hardworking players who it just doesn't happen for. You don't necessarily know. And someone like Backrow now, he's. I think he works mainly as uh, MVL's second. Um, if, yeah, if and one thing that's disappointing to me is I was really, really big on Jeffrey Shiong. Right. The last two years have been basically nothing. Jeffrey Xiong was 2,700 FIDE. He was 18, 19 years old. He was world junior champion when he was 15. And I was like, man, Jeffrey Xiong is going to be top 10 in the world. There's no doubt about it. And the last couple of years, there's he's not better than he was two years ago. And he's yeah. so young that you would think you just keep getting better until you're you know between 25 and 30, and then maybe you level off a little. But it seems like he's already leveled off, and that's – that's disheartening to me because I was really big on him becoming a top 10 player. Obviously, he still could do it. Yeah. But but it just seems unlikely now because he hasn't been 
yeah. improving as I had hoped um, over the last couple of years. Well, someone like Shanklin, at least Sam Shanklin shows that you can have a breakthrough later. I mean, it's mm -hmm. not, you know, uh, as you say, the final story hopefully hasn't been written for someone like uh, Jeffrey Zhang. All right, Ben, we're overdue for one more break. And then uh, I want to um, talk some, some Ben Feingold deep cut biography stuff and some candidates. Perpetual Chess is proud to be brought to you in part by Chessable.com. Chessable, of course, is the premier chess educational website, which allows you to study all aspects of your game using space repetition in order to help you remember opening sequences, tactics, end games, all that stuff. They've got a bunch of fun new courses out, including Arco's endings. Grandmaster Keith Arco, legendary endgame specialist who's been on the pod, nice guy as well. They just adapted his book to the Chessable format. You can learn so much from his endgame how he grinds down masters and even his fellow grandmasters. Chessable also has a free new course available from Mr. Dodgy reviewing I am Eric Rosen's best stalemate tricks. Of course, Eric's known for having a lot of fun end game stalemate swindles, so you can check those out for free. So whatever aspect of your game you'd like to work on, be sure to go to chessable.com and check out all their courses available both for free and for purchase. Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BTW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. And we are back. And Ben, I'm going to warn you, I read your chess life retrospective of uh, how you made GM. We talked about it last time, but then I only recently discovered this article. So I want to mm -hmm. ask you about that. But first, we got to get your candidates quick hitter. Do you, Who do you think is going to win? What are you most excited to see? Stuff like that. You know, I, I think it's such an evenly matched field. You could pick any three people you want. You could, and I'll take the other five because five's more than three. Right. You can say these are the three best players. I'll take the other five. Um, anybody can win the candidates. It just depends on who's playing hot at that moment. Um, Richard Rapport's playing bad now, so maybe he'll play better in the candidates. He's playing bad in this tournament in Romania. Um, Nepomniachtchi's not, not playing very well right now. Um I've been asked this before. I still think Nepomnishi is the favorite. Wow. Um, I think if he's hot, he's going to win. Uh, and I think people overlook Duda and Report a lot because they're like, well, Fabi or Ding, um, you know, are, are the favorites by rating. But I mean, Duda and Report can win these tournaments. Uh, so. I'm going to go with Nepo, but I'm not, you know, I'm not confident. Again, I'll take any five people over any three people. Uh, I don't think there's a clear favorite. And I would say the dark horses are, are Duda and Report. And I think the one person that would actually surprise me winning the tournament, I'd be like, what? They won? There's only one of the eight players, and, and that's Rajabov. Because Rajabov doesn't seem like he's um, – What's the word? Ambitious. That's yeah. the word. He doesn't seem as ambitious as the other players. Now, of course, I've been told more than once by different people 
if Magnus doesn't play, the top two are going to play for the world championship. Huh. So that's interesting. The I would just think the, the person who won is the world the champion because yeah, wow. Play. But so coming in second is almost as good as winning in, in that case. If if Magnus decides not to play, I think people are expecting the rating favorites, Fabi and uh, Faruja and Ding to be the favorites, but I just see them as they're three of the eight players. Yeah, I mean it's the, close. I, all I the agree. Players are really good. Yeah, I agree. Everyone but Rajabov, it seems like, could have a good chance. And, of course, he'll probably make fools of us and then, now. And then Rajabov's going to win and show me. Yeah. yeah. Um, but if I, if I had to pick one, I would take Ding. But, and we'll have more, we'll have more on the candidates um, in, uh, in coming uh, episodes. Now, Ben, another question for you, again, digging deep into your bio. In one of our interviews, you talked a little about your trip to Moscow when you were 14, a formative experience for a young chess player. Um, and you mentioned uh, uh, a bunch of the chess players that you came across, the Russian chess legends. But, uh, you know, recently Yuri Averbach passed, uh, mm -hmm. legendary Russian grandmaster. Now, did you see him in that trip? And I'm curious you know, if you had any interactions with him over the I years. I did not see Averbach that trip, but I did see Averbach in 2011 when I went to Moscow with Hikaru for the Tall Memorial. And I saw I saw Averbach in the audience. Um I've never spoken to him, but I, I'd never seen him before. That was the only time I've seen him was in 2011. Um, and I thought he was old then. So <laughs> yeah, he lived another 11 years. Um, yeah, Averbach, obviously spanning generations of chess players, a great author, great player, um, an icon in chess. And I never had the chance to play him or, or talk to him about anything. Uh, but yeah, it was sad that he passed because he was a hundred and oldest, oldest GM ever. Yeah. Yeah. So, rest, rest in peace to the, yep, to the legend. Yeah. And Ben on the topic of hearing you discuss Averbach, of course, one of my favorite things about getting to talk to you is like, you're like a, um, you're like a chess history windup doll, you know, you just feed you a name and you can go off on it. But you've also mentioned in our prior interviews that you're, you haven't necessarily been like a, a huge uh, chess book reader. And then when I watch your lectures about someone like Morphy, of course, or, you know, so many of the, the great players uh, through history, you know so much. So I'm curious where you get this information and also generally how you approach when you're going to do a lecture about something. You know, when I was a kid, I did read a lot of chess books. Ah, it's just, it all comes just out. Just okay. the last, you know, 10, 20 years have been less. As you can see behind me, those are all chess books. Okay. I have hundreds of chess books. Recently, I got the Winning the World Open chess book by Joel Benjamin. So I was looking at that. You're in it, of I, course. I, I want to win the World Open. So yeah. I, I well, I had asked you on Twitter. I don't know if you yeah. remember, but there was a story he told that you were you were sitting next to something, but you mm -hmm. said you, did, you, didn't, you didn't remember this event. No, I don't remember that what he said, but that sounds like me. <laughs> right. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Um, what was the question again? Now I'm getting lost. How you get ready for lectures. Oh, Yeah. <clears throat> I've noticed when I prepare for a lecture, I don't talk about anything I prepared. So normally it's extemporaneous and I just have some ideas of what I'm going to say. If I'm doing a lecture on specific games, I, I prepare games. But if it's just a general lecture where I'm talking about stuff, a lot of it is just off the cuff because 
I like to say like what I feel in the moment needs to be said, not some prepared stuff that I thought of that's not really apt for the moment. So I like I like to just go with the flow and feel like what the audience wants to hear and what I want to say and what I'm thinking at the moment. Um, I, I've looked at a lot of Morphe games um, online and in books when I was a kid. But I wouldn't say I'm an I'm an historian on Morphe. I just like Morphe a lot. Mm-hmm. I mean, I'm a big Morphe fan, but I haven't done, you know, like I can't I can't tell you all of his results and everything that he did. And you know, I just but I like Morphe a lot. I know some of his games. I think he's underrated. And you know, he's he's basically my hero because he did something which is virtually impossible. He got really good at something when nobody was good. Yeah, and I can understand now how you get good because everybody's good. But you know, if you were if you were you, you can be you. You know how to be you. And the second best player in the world was twelve hundred. Okay, how would you get your strength from where it is now, like twenty one fifty or something, to twenty four hundred? Yeah, it's... if everybody's twelve hundred, you're not going to do it. You're just going to beat up on them, and nothing. You're you're not going to get better at chess. And something similar happened to Morphe. He's way better than everybody. Then he's way, way better than everybody. And I'm like, how did he get good? Did did he watch videos online? Did right. he go to chess tournaments one after the other? Did he have a grandmaster coach? How, how's Morphe getting better? And how come nobody else is? How does Morphe understand things and people don't? How's Morphe scoring 90% against the best players in the world? So it's, it's weird. Yeah. I if you said Morphe's not as good as uh, Carlson, let's analyze with an engine. Okay, but Carlson was playing GMs his whole life and getting coaching from GMs and getting better. But how, how did Morphe get better by beating up on people that were terrible? How do you get better doing that? Hmm. So it, it's just it's um it's like he came from the future. It's like some twenty five hundred from the future came back and just beat everybody and just knew how to play chess. It's amazing. Yeah. It is impressive when you put it like that. Um, all right, Ben. One more topic, I think. Um, again, in in reading, you know, rethinking the Ben Feingold biography, of course, we met in what I think was 1999 or 2000 um, in your brief stay in, in Brooklyn uh, mm-hmm. before you moved back to Michigan. But in going through your bio and reading about your journey to Grandmaster, you know, you went to college somewhat late, um, right before we met. Um and I never hear much about your college years. Obviously, you already had a kid, so it wasn't probably like uh, big partying and stuff. But I'm curious, like that, how that that veering into real life went for you. Well, again, that was sort of like you know, why am I playing all these tournaments? Because my wife's playing. I mean, I went to Wayne State University because my wife was going. We lived on campus, so I figured I'd never went to university. Let's go to university. Um, and then. When I came back to Michigan after my my brief visit in Brooklyn, uh, I continued my education and I I would drop out a few times. So I was I was dropping out before it was cool. <laughs> and I don't know. I just wanted to see what college was like. I didn't have the college experience, you know, that somebody who's fresh out of high school has. I was married with kids and divorced and all that. Uh, but I just wanted to see what it was like. It wasn't really for me. It wasn't something that I enjoyed. Um, but I figured getting a degree would be interesting. And then right before, uh, I probably need another semester and a half to get a degree. I just decided that ah, that's enough. <laughs> um, and back to chess. 
And I, there was one student when I was at when I was at Wayne State. I didn't play any chess. I just did whatever the coursework was and sort of veered away from chess. At that time, you know, I was an IM and making money from chess wasn't like it is now, where you could do lots of internet stuff. Um, you know, either with giving lessons on the internet or streaming or YouTube or anything like that. So it was slim pickings. And going to weekend tournaments to make a living at chess was not uh, not good. So it made sense to do, try to do something else. Um, but I sort of got lucky with the St. Louis Chess Club, and that started my chess career again and making reasonable money yeah. for the first time. And and in the in between years, did you did you end up doing jobs outside of chess? Uh, I got one job that wasn't chess related. When I was at school, I worked at a department store called Kohl's. That was very interesting. I, I'm not a good employee. <laughs> they were like, do this and do that. I'm like, do, how do you do that? Were you in so, sales? I feel like you could be a good salesman. I was just working at a cash register. So oh, okay. I, yeah, I mean, that was just like a minimum wage job because I wasn't getting chess students then. And even then, you know, 20 years ago, 25 years ago, giving chess lessons wasn't lucrative like it is now. I was an IM. It was a long time ago. So, you know, I'd make $50 an hour on a, on if the student paid a lot. Yeah. And, and you're in, have a lot of you students, know, so I had to get a job. Yeah. And you're in Michigan. I mean, you're not like, right. in, like a big chess hotbed. Or I'm anything. not getting internet students because there's no internet students. Yeah. This is many years ago. I mean, when, come a long when, way. When did I do that? 19, 2000, I think about 2006. They had internet then. I guess giving lessons on the internet wasn't uh, big like it is now. Yeah, yeah there weren't many chess servers either. I think ICC was still the big one. Yeah, there wasn't much in the way of Skype and Zoom. Uh, right. I mean, uh, yeah. I think Skype might have only been for phone conversations. God, we're sounding old. Um, and Ben, what was your major in, in college? Um, I would change my major every year or so. So my three majors I had at various points were uh, history, economics, and political science. So make sure when I graduate, I can't get a job. <laughs> that was the important thing. Right. Um, but those funny. are things that interested me at the time. Um, and anything else catching your eye in the modern chess scene, Ben? I know you're covering events like the Super Bet is going on right now. Mm -hmm. I mean, for your stream, you often talk about um, the, whatever current tournament's going on, any you're particularly looking forward to, um, aside from the candidates? Yeah, I mean, there's so many tournaments now. I just know about them as they start. So the, this tournament's really nice now in Romania, the Superbet tournament. That's a very strong event. Um, so I like watching those games. Uh, the candidates will be next. And then, you know, I got my own tournaments. So it's hard to follow what's going on in the world when I'm playing in my own silly tournaments. You mean uh, that you'll be traveling for like the Chicago? Yeah, that's and the world like Open. the World Open and Chicago Open and, and such. Nice. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think about the top tournaments when I'm not playing. Um, and obviously the candidates is going to be great. Yeah. I mean, it's going to be a great tournament. And, I, you know, I was thinking <clears throat> if Magnus doesn't play – who do I want to play a match? Which two people do I want to win the candidates? And it was an easy decision for me. It's, it's, it's Nepomnishi and Faruja. 
that's the match I want to see because there, there, it won't, it won't be boring. Right. <laughs> It'll, it might be the most exciting match ever. Maybe not the highest quality, but I mean, both players playing for a win with both colors and lots of decisive games. And you could argue we've already seen Nipomnishi. How about somebody else? That's reasonable. Then it would probably be report, report in Faruja. Just I want to see the most exciting match possible. Yeah, definitely so need Faruja in there. That's what I'm interested in. Uh, Although- if Magnus plays, <clears throat> I guess we don't want to see Jan again because he already played him. So I guess everybody wants to see Faruja, but maybe you're right. Maybe it'll be Ding. But yeah. I don't think a Ding Carlson match is going to be. I'm not going to be doing cartwheels. Yeah. No. Uh, yeah. From that perspective, I agree. I mean, Ferruja would be the most exciting. Plus, it's the one with the highest probability of happening. Mm-hmm. Um, but Rapport or Duda, um, you know, it seems Magnus is clear. He's not that interested to play people firmly from his generation, Hikaru, Caruana, Nepo, um, and it seems clear he would be up for a match against Ferruja. And Rapport and Duda are like the gray area. Like, does does he consider them his generation or no? So we it's would funny only find because, out. you know, Hikaru wanted to be world champion for like 10 years. And then he just gave up because he was streaming. Yeah. And he was and he was never going to beat Magnus. So if Hikaru comes in first or second and Magnus decides not to play, Hikaru could become world champion without playing Magnus. That would be amazing. That would be. That would be that's not, the, not that's the way to do it. Not the worst thing for chess either. <laughs> yeah, if that, that would be. Happen. Yeah, I wonder what a streaming schedule would be like. <laughs> I guess you get more sponsors. Yeah, cool. Um, amazing to see. All right, well, Ben, we wish you luck in in your tournaments. Um, anything, and you're are you going to be covering the candidates like on your channel? I yeah, yeah. You when, yes. Assuming I'm home, I'll be I'll be doing live candidates coverage. Excellent. Not, not because I want to wait, make money or, or work. It's because I really enjoy it. I mean, yeah. I'm going to be watching it anyway. I might as well talk about it to the crowd. Yeah. And of course, that comes across when, when you do cover these tournaments. Well, good luck to you. Good luck to Karen in these tournaments. Um, and you'll be doing actual appearances for anyone who goes to Vegas. It's the I always get the National Open and the American Open mixed up. It's the National Open? Is that National right? National Open, yeah. Okay. The American so. Open is usually in Los Angeles, I think. Oh, okay. I guess, the, the, but then there's the anyway. Two, there's, the two tournaments you should confuse are the National Open and North American Open. Those, yeah, those are the Vegas ones. Yeah, those are the ones Vegas. I confuse. Yeah. yeah, there you go. And it's always like generic word slash open, you know, or maybe right. re- regional word open. <laughs> um, but anyway, um, Ben, anything else before we let you go? Anything else to to let listeners know about? Yeah, if you guys want to follow me, I'm on all kinds of social media. Um, like Twitch and Twitter and YouTube and I'm in the sky and I'm in your dreams. (laughs) So I, I stream almost every day. Um, I put content on Twitter and YouTube every day, uh, YouTube probably twice a day, more often than once. We we upload a lot of videos on YouTube. Um, and if you see me in a tournament, come say hi, I'll be at most of the big tournaments in the U S this, this spring and summer. So hopefully I'll see some of you guys there. Now, Ben, I have a question for you. Confusing the audience. Are you going to go to the World Open? You know. (laughs) Because it's not far from you, right? Not that far. It's like an hour. And and my parents are in Philly. So I could even, I'd have a place to sleep. So I'd I'd mention. Your wife insists that you go. 
my wife was not as excited as I hoped when I brought it up. <laughs> she she works full time and doesn't get a lot of uh, extended weekends. So mm -hmm. um, I think the most likely thing is I will not play, but I'll try to come by and I'll, I'll definitely um, mm -hmm. definitely try to flag you, Ben, and uh, anyone listening who's going. Yeah, do do drop me a line because I'm gonna if I'm at, if I'm in town, I'll I'll come to the hotel for at least one day. Okay, but cool. And I am playing generally, but it looks like the four straight days of playing is, is a bridge too far for my wife or yeah. five straight days. So, um, uh, but yeah, definitely uh, listeners ping me and Ben. Yeah, I haven't seen you IRL that much. So it'd be, uh, no. be good to catch up. Um, all right. Well, thanks again. And I uh, always appreciate it, Ben. I'm, you're, you're so big time, but I really appreciate that you always uh, make the time for perpetual chess. You're, you're big time too, Ben. You're probably more big time now. You get all the top all the top players on your podcast. Your podcast is very interesting. Thank I'm you. I'm glad I you're doing your podcast. No matter how much money it makes, everybody enjoys it. Thank you. I appreciate it, Ben, as always. Thanks to everyone who helps make Perpetual Chess possible. Big shout out to my producer, Matthew Passy. I'd also like to thank the Blue Wire Podcast Network, with whom we are proud to be affiliated. Be sure to follow us on social media, Beneficial1 on Twitter, at Perpetual Chess on Instagram, and or you can join the Perpetual Chess Facebook group. You can email me, ben at perpetualchesspod.com. And of course, last but not least, I'd like to give major thanks to the Perpetual Chess Patreon and PayPal supporters. Those who choose to join that community based on their level of support can do things like submit questions for guests of the show, have access to live Zoom Q&A lectures with grandmasters who often have appeared on the show, going over chess games, answering questions, stuff like that. And you can even get access to ad-free perpetual chess if that's your preference. So, but most of all, thanks to everyone for listening and we will catch you all on the next episode. Podcast Network. With Lucky Landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to. Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.